Hello everyone, Kirk Hamilton here, and I am excited to welcome you to the first ever Strong Songs Patreon-funded bonus episode. This is going to be a little bit different than your average episode of Strong Songs. It is actually an interview with a very special interview subject that I'm excited to get into. We're going to talk about a bunch of different music, and we're going to listen to some music too. So sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. If you take someone who's passionate about something, like really passionate about it, passionate enough to make it their life's work, you know, could be music, could be art, could be computer programming, there's a very good chance that that person has an exceptional teacher in their past. I've been very lucky in that regard. I've had a lot of good music teachers over the years. But one teacher kind of looms above all of them, and that teacher is Janice Stockhouse. How do you just become a jazz musician overnight? You don't. And my principal said, absolutely not. You cannot resign. Who am I going to get to fill your job at this point in the semester? We don't always have the perfect band, you know. We just don't. You might think we do, but there's always a weakness. The word improvisation is the most beautiful thing that we should be teaching our students, uh, if we can, in the public schools. The only thing I want for students is to come out of high school confident in who they are and with dreams of what they might do with their life. For 38 years, Janice Stockhouse directed bands at North High School in Bloomington, Indiana, which happens to be the town that I grew up in and happens to be the high school that I attended. North is a public high school, much like many Midwestern public high schools, and over the course of her 38 years as band director, Janice turned Bloomington High School North into a name pretty well known in music education circles. Over the course of those 38 years, Janice built the Bloomington North program into a powerhouse across multiple disciplines with four jazz big bands, which is ridiculous for a high school, four full concert wind ensembles, and a competition-ready marching band. I participated in all of those bands, though of course the jazz band was what really had my heart. Janice is a trumpet player. She studied at Indiana University, which is also in Bloomington. That university has a world-class music school, and the presence of that school is definitely one of the things that kind of elevates North and Bloomington in general. There are really great students there that we could take private lessons with. There are also professors. I took lessons with a few, and you know, you can't do that in every small town in southern Indiana. In addition to teaching, Janice, along with Wayne Instis, co-wrote the 2004 book Jazz Women, Conversations with 21 Musicians, in which the two authors recorded really, really interesting conversations with jazz musicians like Jane Ira Bloom, Maria Schneider, Abby Lincoln, and Diana Krall. That book can be kind of hard to track down, which is a shame because it's really, really good. I reread it um, before I talked to Janice for this interview, and I just can't recommend tracking it down enough. Again, that's called Jazz Women, um, and there will be a link in the show notes uh, to where you can find it. So this was a really fun conversation. I have stayed in touch with Janice over the years, and every now and then we'll maybe get together and talk, but I hadn't talked to her in quite a while, and I'm kind of rocked by the fact that she's retired. It's just wild to think that someone who is so important in my life, you know, has moved on to a new chapter in her life. This conversation goes to a lot of different places. I think that they're all interesting. I think that Strong Songs listeners will probably think that they're interesting too. We talk a lot about teaching music and jazz and how to get into jazz, her story, how she started the program at North, and all kinds of things like that. A couple of things to know going in. First of all, there's kind of a whole um, jazz education circle that is based out of the Midwest that I reference a lot, and I try to zoom out whenever possible to kind of explain to listeners what we're talking about. But a few names to kind of know going in. A woman named Lissa May was Janice's predecessor at North, and she was a fantastic band director in her own right. She started the jazz program at North. 
Dominic Spera and David Baker both were jazz professors at Indiana University. Both were a really big deal in jazz education, but you might not have heard of them if you aren't in the world of jazz education. And David Baker, he's actually, I took his improv class when I was um, still in high school, and uh, he passed away a few years ago, which is just a real loss. He's one of the greatest jazz educators of all time. So we'll kind of casually reference David Baker, and that's who we're talking about. I'll put a link to a sort of resource about him. He's someone to know. He's someone who was never famous, you know, outside of this world, but he's such a such an important person in the world of jazz. Uh, the last person that we mentioned is Jamie Abersold, who's another very big deal in jazz education. He runs a summer camp that's the Jamie Abersold Jazz Camp that's still going on. It's really cool. You kind of go and it's a little bit like going to jazz college for a couple weeks, but you know, for younger students. And we reference a few of those uh, like similar jazz summer camps where you go for a couple of weeks and study with college professors or professionals and get to do that. Okay, that's more than enough preamble for me. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Janice Stockhouse, my beloved former band director. Janice Stockhouse, welcome to the show. Kirk Hamilton, it's nice to be here. Thank you. (laughs) So for our first question, let's go big. What does it take to be a good band director? Uh, I firmly believe you yourself must be a fine musician. Teaching an ensemble to play, you have to be able to yourself know how to phrase and what is a good tone and have pretty fine musical skills. For any kind of a teacher, I think the first requirement, I believe, or to be a good teacher is to be passionate about your subject, completely mm-hmm. passionate, because then people who come into your classroom, will they can latch on to that passion and they might then take more interest in what the subject matter is, be it music or whatever. I think, uh, I know that you have to be super organized because there are so many details and you've got to keep track of everything coming at you and all the parent questions and student questions. You have to do your email regularly. You have to reply to people and uh, just to be really organized. So the program you were running at North was just gigantic. To put things in context from where I'm coming from asking these questions, like the only band directing I have done, like the only program I helped run was I was second in command at a small private school where we had two jazz bands and I remember like a that. small chamber group. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember coming to you and asking you for advice. How do I, what am I doing? How do I do this? And, um, and that was so, so much smaller than the Bloomington North music department. It was like, what, four symphonic bands, four jazz bands, a huge marching band, an orchestra that was a whole separate thing, and a choir. I mean, this was like a much, much bigger program. So how much of your time is spent just being organized and keeping things straight? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I always felt like a well-rounded band program for the students' sake should be equal quality um, and, and of course, quality means my efforts into that area. Equal quality marching band, concert program, and jazz program. And I tried to always balance those three things so we didn't become too heavily a, too, it's easy to become too heavily a marching band program, especially mm-hmm. here in the Midwest. Because yes, there's yes. no ocean or other distractions, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, so everybody does, everybody does marching band stuff. And, um, and basically, I just worked my, my tail off for all those years. And I did it lovingly and because yeah. I chose to do that. 38 years. How was the sort of the beginning of jazz for you at North? The scariest, probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I, oh, well. I walked into that classroom uh, for Jazz One on that first day thinking, oh, I can do this because I did my own little high school jazz band and I didn't do it at IU because I was advised if you can't improvise, don't even think of trying out for the jazz bands at IU. So I I never did. And then at my first school for four years, I grew the program 
starting with creating a middle school jazz program, and then as those mm. students came into high school, then we had a high school band program. And heck, by fourth year, we took our spring break down in Florida with the band and played some little concerts in Orlando, including one somewhere in the park at SeaWorld and another one at one of the Disney parks. Nice. So you taught some jazz at your first school. So you thought. So I thought I was going to be an okay jazz director. Oh my gosh. I walk in that room of all boys, one girl, and they looked at me like, who is this? Oh, man. So a woman named Lissa May had been running the jazz department before you. She had built a jazz band, and you were kind of Correct. just walking into the lion's den. <laughs> you bet it. That's the, be- the best way to say it. So after that first day, I began to get pretty worried about that class. In fact, five minutes before it, my hands, I'd be wringing my hands with nervous anticipation. The music library only had like two file cabinet drawers of music, so it was hardly anything to choose from. The scores were condensed. There are there were no recordings back in 1981. Right, you know, edu- man. There was no YouTube, no internet. No. You'd have to buy records. So there was one jazz band at No, North. there were two. There the were second, two, okay. The, the second one was significantly younger and mm-hmm. more, more uh, pliable. It, it, they were fine. It was that top jazz band that had the seniors and the all senior rhythm uh-huh. section who would get lost on purpose in the form just to see if I would notice. Oh, man. that That's funny. I When I was actually in college, my freshman improv teacher, he was kind of one of the saltiest teachers at University of Miami. And he would say to us that he liked working with the freshmen because we weren't so set in our ways that he could actually come in and mold our minds. It's funny that you say that when I was directing, I was directing the second band. And in some ways it was nice. There would be times I'd look at the advanced band and they had the older players and I'd think, oh man, I wish I had, you know, whatever, a couple more people who were better at reading music. But a lot of times it was sort of fun having the younger kids because they were, they were like, they didn't have these you know, preconceptions, they were down to just do, to do whatever. So it's funny that that was that same experience. Um, What was it like, I guess, building the program from there? Well, I had to build myself in that case. Mm, Interesting. So I, I tried to quit, like about the first of October, I, I, after a long weekend of thinking, I went into the principal's office and I said, I don't think I'm your person. I'm pretty good at concert band. Well, we don't even have the symphonic band didn't meet till second semester. I didn't really really have a good concert band at the time. And the marching band, gosh, I think there were 29 people in it, plus uh, 11 color guard. I had a better marching band at my little, you know, and a better concert band at my old school. It was pathetic, you know. Wow. So those those things uh, that I was good at, I didn't have much to work with. And the thing that I didn't know anything about, I felt like I wasn't servicing them. How do you oh, just wow. become a jazz musician overnight? You don't. And my principal said, absolutely not. You cannot resign. Who am I going to get to fill your job at this point in the semester? Just, you know, buckle down and find somebody to IU to help you. And I thought to myself, right, I'm going to go right home and call David Baker. Ha ha. He's not, he doesn't know me. Uh-huh. But, I, but I did call Dominic Spira. And I did call a friend in the um, music education department who was an old jazz pianist. And, and met with both of them. Dominic came in and did a rehearsal one day. And then Dominic said, and the band, of course, was magical when Dominic was there. They went from being devils to angels, you know? Right, of course, of course. It was really swinging and fantastic, and I just even felt actually worse probably after that because I thought, oh, no, now I'll have to go in there to class tomorrow and follow Dominic. But he sat me down. He taught me about practicing scales with jazz articulation. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, come to the jazz concerts. Of course, I I needed to do that, and I did. Then every Monday night, I'd be there. And uh, go to Shell Lake this summer. There's a two-week teacher track for teaching yeah. jazz. Oh, really? I didn't know they did that. Do they still do that at Shell Lake? 
Not anymore. Mm. Dominic taught it, and it was golden. For listeners, that's the Shell Lake Jazz Program. I did that one summer. It's like a summer camp. There are a lot of jazz summer camps, but Shell Lake was actually like a summer camp. It feels a little more like a camp. You're in cabins and stuff, and you kind of do summery stuff. Or at least exactly. we were when we were students. No, it's still true, and it's it still exists, and it's in oh, far nice. northern Wisconsin, so it's a beautiful place to... Mm-hmm. But small enough town that you're away from it all. You're right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a Girl Scout or Boy Scout camp environment, wilderness. I remember doing the like the Abersold one in Louisville, and I think that's at the it's at a college campus, and it just sort of feels like music school or the Berkeley College of Music one. Kind of feels like you're in music school, but you're in high school. But Shell Lake was really kind of like camp, so that's cool. What were things like? What did you learn about how to be an effective jazz band director? I mean, what is what is an effective jazz band director? Well, a I had to learn what jazz was. Yeah. And I really didn't know. I, I mean, I knew names, but I, there, yeah, I didn't know. So I learned uh, lots of tunes. I mm-hmm. played in a big band. I played in a combo. I learned about form. I we had a jazz history lecture about two hours a day, and I asked a million questions of the the staff members. You know, saxophone things and mm-hmm. drum set things. And we had, I think we had individual lessons on each rhythm section instrument if we wanted them. Oh, nice. So I just, I just immersed myself and I came away and I wrote a chart even for big band. Oh, nice. nice. We all had to do that, but that was fun. And uh, yeah, I came out of there feeling like now I have some, you know, tools in my tool belt. Before I was just wearing around this empty belt all year. And now I have a <laughs> hammer and a screwdriver right, and I right. know how to use them. And I was still pretty novice, but it, it was good. And the next summer, I went to the Abersol camp. Oh, okay, nice, yeah. Yeah. So they so, were doing those already in the early 80s. I went to one up in uh, Elmhurst, at Elmhurst College in Chicago. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, that, it seems like there's, there was this like Midwestern jazz industrial complex for education. Even the fact that there was an educator's track at Shell Lake is kind of wild to me. But this is sort of where a lot of the stuff that now is so widespread kind of came from. Is that accurate? I, I've, that's always been my understanding. I think you're right. You know, the first camps that were ever started were the, uh, for jazz that I know about were the Stan Kenton camps. Oh, okay. And I, I think those started in the 50s. But they, were, they weren't at necessarily any one place. They would go around to different colleges. And again, oh, okay. you're right. It was mainly the Midwest. Iowa, mm-hmm. Indiana University hosted it like in 1962, I believe. I saw these historical programs when I was at Aversalt this summer. That's interesting. And uh, he would kind of hire the same staff, but he would mm-hmm. try to go to different states probably to cover different you know, populations of people since... Mm-hmm. Things were far more local back in those days. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, and didn't so, and David Baker, who for listeners, longtime story director at Indiana University and one of the sort of a very important person in jazz education, he was in Stan's band, right? He was in the Stan Kenton band, so that would kind of make sense that there's a sort of a, a, a unified thing there. You talked a little bit about repertoire and having charts, just having the music for people to play. One thing that I remember from going to North was we always had a lot of really cool charts to play. What are some of the, what are your go-tos? What are some of your go-tos just over the years that you've always kind of find yourself coming back to some composers? I would say Everything by Thad Jones. Yeah, Thad is good. Um, Everything that Sammy Nestico writes swings. Mm Mm-hmm.
Um, I like Bill Holman charts. Of course, the David Baker charts, if you've got a band that can play them. <laughs> yeah. They are so cool, and no one knows these tunes outside of Indianapolis and Bloomington. They really don't. It's true. Although Sierra Music is now, um, they were all manuscript. Sierra Music is now publishing some. Are of they really? And we played one when we were in Chicago at a big clinic last December, and mm -hmm. I got more email, you know, <laughs> emails from directors wanting to know about that tune and, you know, did I think their band could do it. It's called IU Swing Machine. I was about to ask, is it the yeah, IU Swing yeah, Machine? Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that was always the killer chart. That was the chart that we always wanted to we play. Had a, we had a pretty good trumpet section, and the saxes did fine, too. It was, mm -hmm. it was good. Um, you know who I like, uh, who's new, is Maria Schneider. Oh, man. Her charts are really refreshing and really different, um, but they're also very hard. She is, yeah, she is tough. I played on, for listeners, a couple episodes ago, just, I was kind of sharing five albums that I love in Allegressa by her. That album is just incredible. Like that tune, Hang Gliding, she yes. actually was at uh, Miami for just a year or something. And then I think she went up to Eastman to finish her degree. So she has this Miami connection. She'd always come down. She came down a few times while I was in school there to do a sort of, you know, direct the, the top jazz band. And they played a bunch of her music. That was how I was introduced to her. And she is amazing. She's in your book too. She's in Jazz Woman, right? You interview her. You're she, correct. Um, man, her whole style, her style of directing is so cool. The way she lays out the band, she puts the sections kind of separately. And then, I don't know, the whole thing is very cool. I'm impressed that you would play Maria Schneider music in a high school big band, but then I guess the North Band is really good, so that uh, that would be tough. What tunes of hers do you play? Well, that's what's so funny, is the one you mentioned, Hang Gliding, yeah. was the one I was exposed really? to first, and so I ordered that from her. Oh, wow. So it's in our library. Uh -huh. I have yet to program, you know, we did not program it. It's so mm -hmm. long. It's so long. It's yeah, yeah, that's the main thing. And it's like and in, isn't it like in 11, 8 or something too? It's got really wild counting. It does, but it's not so much the meters, it's having the, the right soloist. I mean, a soprano yeah. soloist, a tenor soloist. Uh, you have to have, everybody in the rhythm section has to be extremely right. uh, hip, or it'll just be lame. Yeah, that, that main recording, it's like Greg Gispert and, um, what's his name? It's two Miami dudes, actually, the trumpet and tenor player, both just, holy cow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a cool tune. I always wanted to play it, and then she didn't come down. My senior year, I was finally in the band where I would have gotten to have her if she was the guest artist, but then she didn't come that year, so I didn't get to play it. I had no idea that you, you knew her, because that would have been, pro well, she was just beginning to get popular mm -hmm. in around 2000, right? 2001. Yeah, that was right around when I was in school. yeah. yeah. And yeah, she did. I mean, she did a lot of cool stuff down there, and continues to do cool stuff. She's uh, she's pretty amazing. I think she was one of our first interviewees for that book, and I remember we we caught her at her uh, little apartment mm -hmm. outside of Central Park, and um, very small. There were more plants in that apartment than you could imagine. No little <laughs> plants, and it was about 1995. 
So she was just putting her toe in the water. Oh, you know, wow, the, okay. The yeah. stories she had about Gil Evans and yeah, Bob Brook, yeah. Brookmeyer, that's her whole lineage there. So she's one of the future fresh voices in jazz, and I yeah. look forward to seeing what, what she'll do next. Yeah, everything she does is good. I like telling people about her. If you see the poster behind me, though, Duke Ellington, I mean, talk about classic compositions. Those, you know, those will never be matched. That, the whole Lincoln Center thing didn't really exist or was only just coming into existence when I was at North. I feel like you guys have done some of that, right? This is this sort of, there's a Lincoln Center jazz whole institution that Wynton Marsalis runs that's very Duke Ellington oriented. They send charts out to schools. They make that music very accessible and then you can learn to play that stuff and even go play at their festival and, and play out there. You guys have gone out there, right? Or you, you went one year, two years or something to Lincoln Center? Actually, what we did was submit an audition tape. Oh, Okay. And um, did we got very nice comments, but not get did not get selected. <laughs> uh, and I I know why. It's because we had to take we didn't we didn't have we don't always have the perfect band. You know we mm-hmm. just don't. You might think we do, but there's always a weakness. So we had this fantastic musician who could play clarinet, tenor, saxophone, and was our drummer. Oh, wow. So I had to take him off the drums to play the ballad feature on tenor saxophone, which was killer. <laughs> and then uh, he had to play clarinet on this other number because nobody else could come close. And it was the number that I thought we could do. Mm-hmm. But then the drumming chair was a little weaker on mm-hmm. that. So I think we were close to getting in that year, but we didn't get in. And oh, okay. the th- I think it's wonderful, but you have to, de- uh, in my opinion, and I'm, I know I'm right, you have to devote <laughs> almost your whole first semester to those three charts. Yeah. Mostly those bands have them memorized. I just think that's not where I feel our program is best served. And yeah. I think everybody has different things, but mm-hmm. uh, I would like to learn more music and offer more music that has uh, improvisation, more types of music and improvisation opportunities. And build the band that through that music versus just working on three tunes. Um, but it's it's an incredible thing, I'm sure, if you get chosen to go out to New York City. Oh yeah, and you get to see all those great musicians. That's an interesting thing. I think the way that a lot of music education, especially at like the high school level, is built around competition. And then even within North, I guess at North, I think a lot of the reason that we were motivated to be good, or at least I remembering back when I was a student, was that I wanted to climb the ranks. I wanted to be lead alto in the top band. I wanted to kind of achieve in this way and get the solo feature and do that. And it was also the love of the music and I wanted to play and I was falling in love with jazz and with music over the course of you know my time there. But the competition was definitely an important part of it. What are your broad thoughts on sort of engineering competition in the program itself, like with between students? That is a Great question. I think healthy competition is the greatest motivator I know of. Mm-hmm. But notice how I, the moniker, healthy competition. Right, right. You know, you, by healthy means uh, you don't make people feel bad about how, they, how it turns out. Like you mm-hmm. said, you wanted to be lead alto one day. Well, you weren't lead alto because your father gave me $1,000. You became lead <laughs> alto because you were motivated to work hard and earn mm-hmm. those spots. And students recognize when someone is really on fire and getting better. And so th- I think our students at North are very accepting of you know where they are placed each year in the various bands. And they mm-hmm. know that really competition is against yourself. If this is something I really want to be good at it, how do I get there? Does that mean I have to practice? You know, How many people practice in these days? It's 
right? Students go home and play video games for hours and hours and get <laughs> yeah. on their phones. And so it's wonderful to have uh, competition as a motivator for, for individuals, as well as it fuels the director to be a better, it always fueled me to be a better at planning my rehearsals, mm-hmm. uh, using my time efficiently, thinking about the repertoire harder, trying to think about what's best for each individual student. I just worked harder because I had a, I had a goal. And I think competition is part of our society, right? We have that in sports, we have that in academics, we have it in mm-hmm. business. It's, it's, as long as you do it in the right way, it's fantastic. Looking back at high school in a lot of ways, you can see these decisions that get made that then have these really long-lasting repercussions. I had a, a listener wrote in talking about how when he was in middle school in Texas, he really wanted to play drums, but he tried the tuba just for the fun of it, and his director was surprised at how good he sounded on tuba and made him play tuba, and he basically just, you know, kind of fell into being a tuba player, and then he really liked tuba in the end and played it a lot, but now he's, you know, an adult and was kind of thinking, I I can't believe I just played all that tuba, and tuba isn't really this useful instrument for me now. I wish I played drums or bass or guitar or something and I could just kind of play music, and it made me think about how a lot of the time when you're telling a student to play a certain instrument or pushing them in a certain direction, you're making a decision that could actually, or helping them make a decision that could have huge, like, long-term ramifications in a way. Did you ever think about that or feel pressure about that? Or was it just business, like, a thing you had to do? Funny, you're saying that just as I am guiding sixth graders, because I'm now going to do elementary band this coming year. So we had about 100 sixth graders show up to two evenings of nights where they could come and try out all the various instruments mm-hmm. and then, of course, get counseled on you know, what they were a good fit for. Mm-hmm. And a lot of students would you know, have three instrument choices, at least three. Some could play all six of them very well. It's most important that they pick an instrument they like. You know, when, you feel, when you touch something and feel the keys or try a trombone slide, mm-hmm. you know, people gravitate towards something that they like the feel of. And then at the same time, we make sure they can play the mouthpiece. Mm. You know, and if you <laughs> can hear that, sound. hey, that buzz, I'm pretty good at that buzzing that trumpet mouthpiece. They mm-hmm. say only one in 10 people can really play trumpet mouthpiece. That makes it's sense. Such, it's such a small embouchure uh, you have to have. Hopefully those things help them in making their decisions. And mm-hmm. it's, it's all about them. Yes, we try to, you know, not have a whole band of saxophone players. Sorry, Kirk. <laughs> but uh, it usually works out. In fact, the instrumentation is working out beautifully. And without any plan, you know, there's a fair number of flutes, fair number of clarinets, fair number of trumpets. People will start on one instrument, and if they want to change to another, pick up another, they can. Mm -hmm. That poor guy who was stuck on tuba for all those years, too bad he didn't go to Bloomington North, because I bet he would have found his way into the jazz band on trombone and be marching with the baritone and pick up a French horn. I don't know. There's a lot of programs where kids do have the chance to try other instruments as they get older. There are a lot of students from North who went on to become professional musicians or, you know, made music a major part of their life. But there are also a lot of people who didn't and yet still had music as a part of their life that it wouldn't be otherwise. If someone chooses to pursue music seriously, such as you have, that's their choice. If they don't, that is fine. I I would still treasure the time that we had. The only Mm -hmm. thing I want for students is to come out of high school confident in who they are and 
you know, with dreams of what they might do with their life. We're one of the few uh, areas where we get to have a student for four years, or if you work with them in middle school, six years, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways. And that's kind of rare in teaching, right? Because if you teach English, maybe you only know them as seniors or freshmen. So mm-hmm. I really love music for that reason, that I get to see, see them develop into adults. You were saying before that, you know, kids, it's hard to get kids to practice, which I certainly found when I was teaching. So yeah, how do you get students to practice? Uh, how do you get students to practice? You cannot make a, you cannot make a high school student practice. So <laughs> yeah. you have to motivate them. We need to use that word, right? I guess mm-hmm. we use the word competition. Well, I, I like to motivate them with playing tests. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous how much having a playing test motivates people. Wow, like the really? other director and I, you know, like come into symphonic band, people are just casually warming up. Oh, if it's a playing test day, they're in that band room early. They're practicing away. It's uh-huh. usually a little too late to practice 10 minutes till the cl- yeah. you know, before the class begins. But... I feel like I probably did that a few times. Just kind of came uh, in thinking, oh, yeah, crap, yeah, I didn't yeah. learn the scales I needed to learn. <laughs> I know, I know. So playing tests, and you have to... Uh, Enough so they are, you know, consistently practicing, mm-hmm. not so many that it dominates your rehearsal time. That's a fine line. So now it's possible to just listen to anything, like to find any jazz recording, just about, online. Like, it's on YouTube if it isn't on... I know, it's insane. It's crazy. So how has that changed the way you teach music? I can only imagine. I can only imagine, so I'm curious how it's changed things. For example, you could create a playlist. Uh, let's say you have 10 tunes that you're, of your upcoming concert, and mm-hmm. you just create that playlist of the recordings you want them to listen to. You know, find the best or the ones right, you right. like the interpretation of. And then you just email that to your students. There it is. Now, it's up to them to actually listen to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can kind of quiz them, like, what did you think of the trumpet solo, you know? Or did you hear (laughs) how the drummer was setting up these things? Uh And actually, they appreciate having that guided listening, by Mm -hmm. and large. Yeah, I definitely found that. I mean, that's obviously, that's like what this podcast entirely is, is like basically guided listening. And that, when I was going to like Abersold camps in particular, where there was a little more dedicated time, we would just sit there and Jamie Abersold would put the chart or the head chart up on the overhead and would just point along with the tune and just talk to us over a microphone, just over what was happening. And it was so helpful for me because I, it was the way that I learned what was going on in a jazz recording. Here's a Jamie Abersold story. So this is truly the best jazz camp ever. It is. It's, and he wasn't going to do it this year, but then he did it again. And nice. I went to it this summer. I don't know if I okay. told you that or not. I went to the second week, and I went as a bass player because I wanted to be motivated to learn the bass. Oh, that's such a cool idea. Oh, that makes me kind of want to do that. <laughs> that's oh, really gosh. cool. The bass is everything. Oh, I yeah, mean, I you know. never stop. You can't, for a beat, falter. Nope. Or the mm-hmm. group, well, you know, you're the... You, you and the drummer, but especially the bass player, runs mm-hmm. that ship. So anyway, Jamie is still teaching with the overheads, and he still has the guy with the pencil following the chord changes. Because learning to read changes is everything in improv. You yep. know, or I should say everything, but it's a very basic fundamental that a lot of students don't have. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say students, I should say people. Yeah, people. So why not have the chart up there? Whilst, and Jamie mm-hmm. uses YouTube now. You'd be proud of him. Oh, so he does? Oh, nice. He'll, plug, he'll have his assistant plug him into YouTube and mm-hmm. plays the track he wants and then 
talks about the tune as nice. somebody else takes the pencil up on the overhead. It's hilarious. One of the funniest things is that every Jamie Ebersol, so El, Jamie makes these play-alongs. This is for anybody who doesn't know Jamie Ebersol listeners. He makes these play-along CDs that are these storied, you know, collections of jazz tunes where he gets a really good rhythm section together and plays and you can like practice soloing. It's super useful, especially in like the 80s and 90s and coming up just because for me it was so helpful to have a rhythm section to just practice with all the time. He always counts off the songs at the beginning and it's always the, it's always him. So you'll hear like one, two. One, two, one, two, three, four. One, two, three. And it's this voice. And for a long time when I was a student, I didn't realize it was him. And then I went to his jazz camp and he counted someone in or he was talking and then he started one of his play-alongs. And while he was talking, his voice came in at the same time and everyone in the room kind of realized all at once that it was him and just laughed and it was very funny. I always think of that when I think of Jamie. You do a very good impression of him. And <laughs> I've, fact, I've heard him a lot of times. The way he started his Sunday evening meeting was one. <laughs> and of course the entire auditorium erupted so that's awesome that's funny it's like a, a recurring thing traditions are good i you know i hear from people who uh, listeners who will have gone to a band program where there wasn't much of a jazz background or who didn't learn jazz and it's interesting you were talking about uh chord progressions and learning to read chord progressions and to improvise i feel like you get a kind of applied theory, like you learn music theory in a different way when you're learning to improvise because you need to learn the scales, not in the way that if you're in a symphonic band or wind ensemble, you know, you have to learn your major scales. You don't really connect them with the music because you just play the scale and I had to learn it for the test and okay, I learned all my major scales and then I learned the piece that we're playing in band and I learned to play that and that was important too. But there isn't a connection between those two things in the way that in a jazz band, if you learn all your whatever mixolydian and bebop scales, then you're soloing and you're like, oh, I can use these scales that I learned in my solo. Is there a solution for that for people who aren't learning jazz or is jazz just the best way to do that kind of applied music theory? Well, you bring up so many good good questions. <laughs> First, I want to say that I'm lucky enough to have gotten to teach an AP music theory class. Oh, that's at right. North, North for a very long time, and mm-hmm. the student there's usually about 20 students in there, and I have found to the letter if you if you're a member of the uh, top two jazz bands, mm-hmm. you're going to ace that course because you understand music because you right. have to learn everything you just explained. Your ears are probably five times better than the other students' ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the same reason. So studying jazz is like studying music. Right. Like you, like you just like said. all music. And then you said, how can you do that in classical music? Well, the size of the ensemble, that presents a challenge. You know, a 60-piece mm-hmm. concert band versus a 20-piece jazz ensemble. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's part of it. But more and more, even classical music majors these days are realizing that if you go to a gig a recording gig or mm-hmm. some other kind of gig, if you can improvise, your chances of getting calls are twice as much. So yeah. even classical musicians these days are realizing the benefits of improvisation. And it doesn't, you know, jazz is such a wide term, isn't it? I mean, oh, it can yeah. incorporate everything, you know, uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of fields and, and a global music. So maybe just the word improvisation is the most beautiful thing that we should be teaching our students, uh, if we can, in the public schools, figure out a way to teach them improvisation because of the creative aspect and all that goes into that. Yeah, right. People will ask me, how can I learn to compose music or to be a songwriter? 
And and it's tricky. Like that's because I only know my own background, and that's really where it came from. It's because that's what you're doing when you're improvising. You're spontaneously composing, and you then need all the tools that let you do that, which is you know a full knowledge of harmony and chord scale relationships and all of this stuff that you then would use if you were just sitting down at the piano and slowly writing a song. It's the same process, just slower <laughs> and like a little less stressful when you're not you know on the bandstand making it up as you go. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the beautiful things about our music. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. In the symphonic band, you're in the tradition of a wind ensemble, but it's tricky, right? I would imagine it's tricky. Like, how could anyone Im- introduce the idea of improvisation to that tradition? You could. It would just take rehearsal time. Yeah, I guess that's true. And then there's the whole fear factor, mm-hmm. right? Of if Because you don't have the whole class improvise at once. Well, I guess you could do that, too. But, I mean, if you went down the line and had each flute play, uh, or each person play eight bars over a B-flat major... Uh, Bossa Nova, mm-hmm. Jamie Abersall, thank you very much. <laughs> I think half of them would be scared to even bring yeah. their flute up to their lips. So that whole that's a whole nother thing in music is playing by yourself in mm-hmm. front of your peers. Right. That is scary. You have to be brave enough to do that if you're going to sign up for a jazz band class. And the students mm-hmm. know that. That's why so many of them say, oh, I could never be in jazz band. I, right. It's like giving a speech or something. Right. Even though there were total, there were always students in jazz band that you, that didn't have to solo or that weren't really soloists. They were just good musicians who wanted to be in the band. That's correct. We know that, but the outside world to students, they think everyone is as good right. as Kirk Hamilton or something like that, or has to be. <laughs> right. You have to be ready to, to get up and solo. Um, you know, related to that, so you wrote uh, or co-wrote the the book or one of the books on women in jazz, and you mentioned when you started at North that there were, you know, it was almost all boys in the jazz band, and I definitely remember that. Jazz has always been this kind of male-dominated field. The book is called Jazz Women. People should read it. It's really incredible. It's just like a series of conversations. I just reread the one with Abby Lincoln. Oh, man, so good. Even though you're only make-believing laugh clown. There are some really, it's some amazing interviews with a bunch of uh, women jazz musicians, a lot of instrumentalists, which, you know, a lot of discussion of women in jazz focuses on vocalists, so that's really cool. Uh, there's also a conversation with Jane Ira Bloom, the soprano saxophonist who actually came to North when I was there. I still remember that. Uh, she really knocked me out. She's a totally killer player. I guess I'm curious your thoughts on it in general, on why boys are more drawn to jazz in high school or whether jazz encourages them, like what the what the system is that makes that happen or why, I don't know, just any of your general thoughts on that. Absolutely. Public school music education started in the 1920s mm-hmm. and the the people who were the, the band directors were had to have been 100% male. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure, n- not by their own intentions, but I'm sure they guided women toward woodwind instruments and boys toward brass and percussion. It was just kind of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the school setting. And then the jazz bands that we looked at, uh, think about them, they were they were 100% male instrumentalists, or mm-hmm. 99.9. I mean, there was right. Mary Lou Williams. and Melba Liston, yeah. Log- that's right. Logistics of uh, hotel rooms. Sharing mm. hotel rooms. Oh. Like the vocalist sometimes had to stay at a different hotel, I heard. Oh, really? They had a female vocalist. And the other thing was, it was a hard life, a yeah. really hard life. And not sure many women you know, would have chosen that kind of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, but 1960s comes along, and we are finding more women you know, doing things. There are so many great yeah. players now. So mm-hmm. it's, it's coming. It's like one of those glass ceilings that's still needs to be broken. Uh. I think about 
all of the the ways that boys act in high school, like the sort of default high school boy mentality, which is typically, you know, at least the students I had, there was a lot, there were a lot more like loud, sort of willing to stand up and take attention and be in a, a lot of times in a bad way, sometimes in a good way. And that jazz itself kind of like encourages that kind of behavior. And because there's this whole like social decades or whatever, more than decades, like centuries of reinforcement for boys acting that way and girls not acting that way, it almost feels as though that then just plays out in the jazz band because jazz music tends to encourage that sort of individual expression. So it's like you're up against this whole long like swath of history. That's right. Have you noticed that changing at all like in your time at North? It comes with uh, women having young women having confidence. Mm-hmm. And you're just you nailed it. The boys by and large, sophomore boys, fresh they, they don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> They'll get up and take a solo. They don't care if they play wrong notes or if it sounds mm-hmm. bad. They just don't care. Mm-hmm. Whereas we women are trained that we must be perfect, right? Yeah. Why do women wear makeup and curl their hair and mm-hmm. you know put on lipstick in between class? And uh, so we can't make mistakes. I think is how yeah. we are kind of brought up in a you know generic term, and that's unfortunate. But it is knowledge and confidence can overcome fear. Yeah, it seems like yeah, it's a good place. For stu- well, for all students to to get to experience that or experiment with that, with like sounding bad and getting up in front of people and being confident and like just throwing your stuff out there and seeing what happens. <laughs> Arts education seems to be perpetually imperiled. You know, band departments you know are getting like funded less and fewer and fewer students have access to being in a band program, let alone one that's you know really big and really robust. Is that something you've seen just talking to other band directors and, and working in the field? Unfortunately, um, economics runs our society here in this country. <laughs> so it's, it's the haves and the have-nots. And so if you're living in a wealthy school district where you mm-hmm. have the parents that have the means, and sadly, instrumental music, if you can't get an instrument in their hands, or if you don't have families who can take you to rehearsal or mm-hmm. pick you up from rehearsal, it's, it's, um, it's frightful, the separation of classes in our country you know, the rich and the poor. Like North's bands are largely, is this right, largely funded by parent organizations? Is that correct? Because it's this huge band program with huge facilities and all this amazing stuff. But, you know, it's not like some rich private school. It's still a public school. Um, How did you scrape together the money for that? I think you were there when we bought our first marching band semi-trailer truck. I remember that, yeah, which blows my mind thinking about having a semi-trailer truck owned by your band department. Well, we still have it. Nice. You know. But um, yes, you have to have a a parent organization. So our band boosters probably raise about $60,000 a year. Oh, wow. And so that that helps a great deal, Mm -hmm. you know. And you you couldn't have a competitive marching band or you couldn't, you know, just to enter jazz festivals is $300 a group. A combo entry might be 200 for each combo. Mm -hmm. Then you got to pay for the bus. You know, and on and on and on. So it's expensive to have an active band program. So donations, getting your community support you. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we do. We reach out. We also do a patron drive where people uh, advertise to get their name in our program. Just like when you go to a symphony orchestra concert, right, the right. patrons. We don't have the $10,000 companies or anything, but <laughs> right. even if people give us $50, we, we mention their name in the program all year long. Oh, nice. So, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I guess, I, yeah, my question about the flip side of that is if anybody listening wants to help out their local 
band, what's the best way for them to do it? Pretty pretty much go to the band website. Or yeah. How about all the, the jazz organizations like B-Town Jazz? That's mm-hmm. our Bloomington jazz affiliate, you know, parent group or adult group. Mm-hmm. You go to their website, there's always a donate button. Right, right. Yeah, and most major cities at least. I know in Portland they have a jazz group like that they did in San Francisco too, like sure. a nonprofit that kind of organizes stuff. San Francisco has like the greatest, I think. Yeah, right? there's Don't you in- have that art center or the jazz center downtown yeah they would have that one that like the sf jazz all-stars that would meet every year i would be in a room with like joshua redman and miguel zanon and all these players like 10 feet from them with these high school students and it was pretty incredible that they got to just go watch an open rehearsal with a group like that So much music education takes place when we're kids, and I, you know, hear from a lot of Strong Songs listeners who are um, adults, like, you know, most of my listeners are adults. I think some students listen, but it's a lot of adults, and I sometimes am frustrated by the way that there's such a built-in narrative that you have to learn music when you're young, and that if you didn't, you know, learn an instrument or master something or really get good, but by the time you're age 20, it's too late, and you're you're never going to really get it, and you should, you know, you missed the boat. A lot of people say to me, oh, I missed the boat on that, or I, you know, I didn't, and that always strikes me as untrue, especially because I'm learning all these different instruments now, and I've always kind of been practicing and being bad at something and practicing. You were just talking about learning (laughs) bass and doing that at Jamie Abersold. What are your thoughts on adult music education in general? I've probably heard that same statement 5,000 times from adults saying, oh, if only I had learned to play an instrument. I can imagine. I I always, I really should have done that when I was, had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as you become, out of high school, you know, as you become an adult after age 18, you become busy in life, don't you? You know, working and having a family or whatever, your, your, your life gets busy. And you think, as high school students, they think they're so busy. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <Good>. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, my reply is always the same. It's never too late. Right. It's never too late. Mm-hmm. But we have trained in our country, at least, a whole generation of people, musicians, student musicians, who they think they can only do it if they're in a group. Hmm. How do they find a group? How do they make time for those weekly rehearsals or whatever that right. is? Because as single instruments like saxophone or trumpet, it's not that fun to sit around for three hours and play it compared to right. being in a, in a band or a combo or something. No, that is definitely true. I think there are more and more community groups starting up across the country. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm uh, directing a community adult jazz band. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. awesome. It meets twice a week. Uh-huh. And, uh, no, twice a month, excuse oh, okay. me. Twice a month. I was like, twice a know. week? Jeez, you guys are going to no, be no, working no. it out. <laughs> Twice a month. I have to be very careful on what, what we program. But yeah. uh, we're playing at the upcoming 4th Street Festival. Oh, that's great. So that'll great. be fun. Nice. And then I also had this idea. I got it after going to a gen convention um, where there's, uh, this man gave a little presentation. Of course, mm-hmm. he's doing this to make lots of money in a metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. And by the time the presentation was done, it was suggested that you contact him and pay like $5,000 to get his program. Uh-huh. And basically it was, he has an adult jazz combo program set nice. up. And at the end of each semester, they give a, a concert at the local jazz club oh, where nice. they can invite their, their families to come or friends mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they charge admission. It's like a real like, yeah. gig, gig thing. So I had this idea in the back of my head. So now that I'm retired, I finally got together a flyer just the other day and it's called <laughs> In Full Swing. Nice. In full swing. And it's for uh, musicians 18 and o- older. My plan was to f- form 
uh, combos based on ability level and personality, let's say, or an interest, and uh, turning one of the rooms in my house into a combo room. Oh, that's with awesome. a drum set, a yeah, piano, yeah. a couple amps, all those things. Uh-huh. And I'd like to see if I could get something like this started for people who are out there thinking they have nowhere to play. Nice. I've, that's such a cool idea. I enjoy that you've said that, you basically said that now that you're retired, you can start all these new projects, <laughs> like doing all these <laughs> new things. <laughs> That's like talking a, to you. Right, right. Oh, cool. I'm finally retired. Now I can go do a hundred a hundred other things. <laughs> um, that's really cool. Um, I guess we can we can kind of wrap up, but I want to ask you before we do, do you have any uh, records, like maybe two or three jazz albums or other types of albums that, that you think listeners should check out or things that have just been instructive over the years, things you recommend students listen to, anything specific that we can give people to go listen to that, uh, that listen to this interview? As you know, the entry-level album is still, to this day, I believe, the kind of blue. Oh, yeah. It's so ex- it's so accessible, mm-hmm. and then we did a, a workshop on one of the tunes with Pat Harbison at at, at Aversault. Not a workshop, but a lecture on one of the tunes. Mm-hmm. I had no idea uh, that you know I did a, a lengthy thing on flamenco sketches in school. And how the improv is different with each yep. musician like the length of the yep. chorus changes and the, the, the feel what's the feel of the it's double time versus mm-hmm. single time just uh that album is something else um i never thought about that tune uh ronnie i think it was ronnie miller it was a professor at u miami had this whole thing on that how that was like the real modal tune on kind of blue so for listeners kind of blue is this miles davis album it's like the generally held up as the greatest jazz album of all time um it's at least one of them and it was kind of the beginning of modal jazz which is like long phrases with a single chord but um flamenco sketches is he was his point was that it was truly modal because it's like modes it's like a phrygian section and there's an ionian section and they're kind of not playing it like a major seven chord they're playing it like an ionian mode and then each section is a different length for each player like cannonball hangs out on the mixolydian section for longer because he likes playing bebop stuff on like mixolydian but i think miles maybe stays longer on the phrygian section and they so it's this totally like amorphous song that i had never even really listened to that closely because it's at the end of the album and it's kind of pretty abstract and I don't know the other stuff is a little more approachable but yeah there's so much going on in that album and then the players are all just so good it's it's uh it's ridiculous what's um yeah what else what are what are some other albums my favorite things John Coltrane yeah that's a good one worry that people find Coltrane too abrasive or too too like intense I, I sometimes worry about it, like recommending Coltrane to some people because he's so intense but I guess maybe maybe people can handle for it for God's sake my favorite things is just from the sound of music <laughs> yeah it's like the most intense version how, of the sound of music how song. <laughs> innocent does the album sound it does, the title true. sound um, that's funny. Cannibal Adderley. Which one? <laughs> 
that has a work song on it. Oh, is that like the and Mercy, 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 the live one where they brought the club to the studio to record? I think that's on Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. There's like people yelling through the whole album. That one's yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, that's Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. I think is the name of the album. And then the track, is, that tune is on the album too. That's definitely a good one. How about Maria Schneider? Yeah. Like you said, the Allegress album. That album is good. It's kind of hard to find. Um, she's she's pretty, you know, she's not as into the streaming services in the way that... She is way, way against that. You're right. And I, and I respect her for that. Same. Totally. I think her arguments are really convincing in that respect. I always tell people, like, just go buy her album from her. You can buy it on her website. Like, nobody does that's that right. anymore, but it's worth it, especially for an artist, you know, as singular as her. That is a good, that's a good idea. I feel like a lot of people hear big band music and they think Basie, they think Ellington, they kind of hear this one sound. When you hear Maria Schneider, it's like the soundtrack to a dream or something. It's this whole other thing. And, you know, that, I, that like, it just shows the breadth of the music and how many different things it can be. So she's a cool, a cool modern example for sure. Janice, thank you so much for uh, for talking to me and just congratulations on, on everything and for being a, a great teacher for so many years. Kirk, you have my heart. Thank you for having me on your show. And that'll do it for my interview with Janice Stockhouse, jazz woman, trumpet player, former director of bands at Bloomington High School North, and all-around awesome lady. This episode was entirely made possible by my patrons, the people who support this show on Patreon, and I cannot thank them enough. This is just one more opportunity for me to tell all of you who have pledged money to support the creation of Strong Songs that it means the world to me and it makes it possible not only for me to do special bonus episodes like this, but just for me to spend so much more time working on this show, which I love to do. I am not kidding. This is my favorite thing to do. And if I could, I would do it as my primary gig. You are making it more and more likely that that could actually come to be one day, which is a very cool thing to think about. So thank you all. I appreciate you so much. And if you're listening to this show and you like what I'm doing, I do hope that you'll consider going to patreon.com slash strong songs and considering signing up to become a patron of the show. The outro soloist for this very special episode is also special. His name is BJ Court. He was the first outro soloist I ever recorded. And as it happens, he is also an alumni of Bloomington High School North. BJ was a year ahead of me, and he was an amazing trumpet player even then. I looked up to him so much, and it was such a thrill that I got him to come record not only an outro solo for the show, but also the trumpet parts on the theme music for Strong Songs, which is a very cool way of kind of completing a circle that opened many, many years ago when we were both still in Bloomington, Indiana. Thanks so much to Janice for taking the time to talk to me, and special thanks to Jeff Parker, who was the recording engineer on her end and recorded Janice talking. Jeff is a BHSN graduate and also a pretty nasty trumpet player, I happen to know because I caught him playing uh, last December. Kid can really play. He's going to IU next year to study jazz, so I wish him all the best. Okay, I'll be back next week with a regular Strong Songs episode. In the meantime, enjoy BJ's outro solo, and take a moment to support the arts and support music in your community. It really, really does matter. 